This forum is part of City Club's Education Innovation Series, sponsored by Nordson Corporation. We're grateful for their generous support. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon. Ah, such lively conversation, I hate to interrupt, <laughs> but we are here for a reason. <laughs> so good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Thursday, July 14th, and I'm Cecilia Rinder, Executive Director of the Nordson Corporation Foundation. I am pleased to introduce today's Education Innovation Series Forum, of which Nordson is a proud partner. At Nordson, we know the health and well-being of a child dictates the likelihood of their success in school. It is why the Ohio Department of Education adopted the whole child framework. It's also the fundamental premise underlying Say Yes Cleveland, which provides support services for students beyond the classroom and the school day. Put simply, the framework ensures a student is supported, safe, healthy, and engaged in the classroom and community. However, our nation is currently witnessing an unprecedented youth mental health crisis. Experts point to a number of causes like social media, academic stress, the COVID-19 pandemic, and increasing poverty. The situation has become so dire that the U.S. Surgeon General issued an advisory in December 2021 urging a response. Add to this, certain approaches to mental health support, including social-emotional learning, are becoming a lightning rod in the culture wars inside American classrooms, hampering what may, many experts believe to be a common-sense intervention. So, is the whole child platform the solution to combat the crisis? And what can we learn from schools that have impl implemented this framework? Here with us today to discuss the solutions that ensure all students have the ability to succeed is Merle Johnson, member of the State Board of Education, District 11, and retired CMSD teacher. She was my husband's teacher. <laughs> Dr. Tracy Nahata, did I do that right? Executive Director of the Children's Defense Fund of Ohio. Joseph Specia, Superintendent of the, Lake, of the Wycliffe City School District. And moderating the conversation today is Dr. Lisa DeMoore, author, psychologist, and senior advisor to the Schubert Center for Child Studies at Case Western Reserve University. If you have any questions for our panelists, you can text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club City Club staff will try to work them into the second half of the program. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming our panelists and Dr. Lisa DeMoore. Lisa. All right, 
We're going to get rolling. We have so much to cover. So I want to start us sort of at 30,000 feet. There's a lot of terminology. I think some of it, especially for those of, who of us who are not in K through 12 education, can feel a little inside baseball-y. So my first question, I'm going to ask each of you to answer two questions. And we'll, I'll, we'll do it in order. What do people need to most understand about the whole child framework, what it looks like on the ground, how it actually operates in a school? And what do people most misunderstand about it? So Merle, let's start with you. Thank you. First of all, uh, thank you, City Club, for inviting me to be here. Uh, is, is there a graphic on the, I can't see, is it up? OK, there it is. OK. Um, I think the most important thing that people need to understand about the whole child framework is that without it, um, children will not learn. If we don't address uh, all facets of what it means uh, to be a child, they will not learn. I love this graphic. Um, let me just go back to, Cecilia mentioned the strategic plan. Uh, the strategic plan was designed by the Ohio Department of Education and State Board of Education along with stakeholders throughout the state of Ohio. We held 13 regional meetings um, and made sure that we got input from a lot of people, more than 1,300. And the strategic plan was centered around the whole child. And I think what was unique about it is that we had four learning domains, uh, foundational knowledge and skills, well-rounded content, leadership and reasoning, and social-emotional learning. And there are four equal learning domains. So SEL is no longer an afterthought because we began to recognize that without it, our children would not be successful in academics. And so if you look at the graphic, um, notice the whole child is in, in the center. And as was said, whole child, you have to, they have to feel safe. If they don't feel safe, learning will not happen. Uh, they have to be healthy. They have to be supported by the community and by the people within the school. They have to be engaged in work that is challenging Okay, and work that they feel that they can be successful at. And, as I, and the last one is they have to be challenged. Uh, the family, I, I really like this because the family is around the outside along with the community. And I see the family as these big arms around the child and the community with these big arms around the child. So to me, that's why the family and the community are on the outside. What people fail to understand about the whole child uh, framework is that it's a necessity. Also, um, members of the state board and other people say, well, schools shouldn't be doing that. Parents should be, should, should be doing that. Last year, the research showed that we had 20,000 homeless children in Ohio. Who's going to do this work? So it is necessary. It is necessary for this to be happening in our schools. Wonderful. Tracy. So I want to echo everything that Merle said. And you know, simply add on by saying that the whole child framework is not something new. It's something that has recently been formalized, right? But it's something that's actually been occurring in all of our school districts for at least 100 years, if not longer. When you think about you know, the early school lunch programs or school nutrition programs, that were instituted locally, it's because parents and school community and business folks, they discovered there was a need. Our children were coming to school hungry. We need to do something about that. 
because you know there's a there's a saying in education, and I'm from a rural area outside of Dayton, and I like you know kind of folksy sayings, but this one's more on the education side. It's you know you have to Maslow before you bloom, mm -hmm. and I know the educators in the room they're shaking their heads. So Maslow, you need to address the basic needs of a child, actually of anyone. I mean, think about it. If you're going to work hungry, if you slept in your car the night before because you lost your housing, it would be very difficult for you to function effectively in the workplace or anywhere else. So why would we demand more of a child, right, and not address their needs? So communities have been doing this for a long time. And, you know, a lot of this work you know, it's, it's grassroots work. It's going on because parents are demanding it, because teachers want to partner with parents and school districts recognize the need and they want to figure out how to make it all work together. So that's number one. I think number two is, you know, we have to, uh, there's a, a lot of noise about, you know, schools must come back to, you know, the basics, reading and arithmetic. And I, I would say to them is, um, you know, children don't come in pieces. You know, just because a child is, you know, yes, there to learn, that doesn't mean that they're leaving all the stressors of their life, whether good or bad, you know, at the schoolhouse door. They bring their whole selves to school, and we need to be ready to address their whole selves. So um, that's, that's some of the things that I would, I would say and want people to know. Joe. Thank you, Lisa, and, and good afternoon, everybody. And, and I would simply echo um, both of my colleagues and what they had to say. And, and, and I will add a couple of things to that, uh, if you would. Uh, one of the things the Ohio Department of Education did in, in bringing the whole child framework together was they s simply drew upon what is the goal of education. And really the goal of education is to help young people, to help all people, to become. To become what? And it is to become successful at whatever it is they choose to do. Um, the goal of the uh, uh, whole trial framework very simply, or the, or the goal of the uh, Ohio Department of Education strategic plan is to increase the percentage of high school graduates who one year after graduation, one year after graduation are enrolled or enlisted or employed or, and or somehow engaged in meaningful vocation. And that has been the purpose and the goal of education from the beginning. Um, and we got lost a little bit. We got lost and we got caught up in the idea that, by golly, we need to learn algebra and we, learn to, we need to learn geometry and so forth. And what the, the Ohio Department of Education did very recently was they, they recaptured what education's all about. And education's all about preparing the entire person, the entire child, for success in their life. Not a life that we prescribe, but in a life that they choose. All right, so with that laid out, and Tracy, I'm gonna start with you. From where you sit, if you had boundless resources, what would you do? This might be dangerous. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty theoretical. I so. no, I, actually, I love these, this question. Um, you know, first and foremost, we need to figure out school funding. That's um, a top of line for me. I think second to that, is ensuring that there are school lunches for free for all children. Because as we've seen during the pandemic, um, there were so many children that were coming to school hungry day after day. And through the pandemic though, they were getting their lunches taken care of. Now with so many benefits, um, especially with the benefits cliff coming, you know, um, for so many families, those free lunches come to an end this year. So that's another thing that I would do. 
third is um, the Department of Education and the Ohio Department of Medicaid have this great project where they created these healthy student profiles for every school district in Ohio. And it's based off of um, Medicaid data or CHIP data. But it looks at things like, you know, um, how many children have asthma or diabetes, you know, within these school districts. And I would challenge us, if we had unlimited resources, to take a look at all those school districts and if they have shortages of services, if they have shortages of healthcare providers, to figure out how we can, you know, wrap around those services in those schools. Because right now we have so many children that come to school with underlying health problems, chronic health <laughs> issues that are not being addressed that lead to chronic absenteeism and worse. So uh, those would be the top three things for me. I'm sure there's probably more, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. There are two Wycliffe teachers in the audience today who would probably answer this question better than I will. Um, and in addition, um, our district uh, innovation uh, director is here as well. And, and again, she would probably answer this question better than I will, but I'm gonna give it a stab. And I think in terms of we begin with the idea of what do students need to succeed, and we work backwards, and we decide that what they need to succeed is to be healthy, to be whole, to be well-fed and prepared for whatever school is going to bring to them. And what we need to do is we need to create a priority in the state of Ohio that says that's the first step, and whatever that cost is, we need to bear. Um, the solution, I guess, that, that we began to create or, or, or in the process of creating is to create a comprehensive approach, um, an intentional and direct approach to addressing uh, social-emotional learning, to addressing healthcare and mental health issues, primary healthcare and mental health issues, to addressing equity, um, to addressing equality, um, and creating that academic environment for students that begins with them walking in the classroom door feeling good about who they are and feeling comfortable and, and strong in, in uh, their beliefs about what they want to become. Um, there's no limit in the number of dollars that we need to spend to meet that goal. Uh, I like this question too. Okay. <laughs> um, those of you who know me know that I am very much involved with doing tra trauma-informed uh, training. And if I had unlimited resources, um, let's talk about trauma first. Trauma, the, the impact that it has on the brain. I think it's really important for everybody to understand why our students don't do well in, on testing and everything else. Um, when students are, when children are babies, if they have a strong uh, attachment to the parent, uh, then that builds resiliency. But so often in our troubled homes, uh, children don't get that attachment. And so they grow uh, in a way that they're very susceptible to violence and threats and so forth. And 90% uh, of the brain is developed by the age of three. And so uh, when we talk about trauma and what it does, it, it, the brain is what's called use dependent. So whatever part gets used the, much, the most, it becomes the most dominant. And if children are always threatened and afraid, then the survival part of the brain becomes the dominant part. And that really, to use the term, hijacks um, the prefrontal cortex or the thinking part of the brain. And so if I had unlimited resources, I would make sure that every educator, every person in Ohio who works with children would be trained in tra trauma-informed strategies. I would also make sure that every uh, detention officer, 
our children over at detention uh, center, uh, Kiowa County Juvenile Detention Center, have a lot of trauma, and I just truly believe that the detention officers are not being trained the way they should to work with those children. And so I'd make sure that trauma-informed strategies was being, uh, uh, everybody was having training in trauma-informed strategies. Uh, I just think that that would make a huge difference in the success and the joy of, of our students and our teachers because they would have the tools to be able to work with our children to help them be successful. Um, thank you. Thank you. Um, Joe, I'm going to start with you on this question. You mentioned your teachers, and you know, schools are relationships, relationships, relationships. So when we're thinking about whole child, that teacher who is there, the staff of a school, are so critical, as we all know. And we also know that the pandemic has been brutal for educators. So how are teachers doing? What do teachers need? What, how do, where do they fit into this picture of supporting the whole child? Teachers have struggled yeah. the last couple of years. Um, there's no doubt about that. And they, they struggle, in, and if you read the most recent reports, um, because students are struggling. Uh, students are having you know, mental health issues and emotional issues, and they bring those things to school. And we have this expectation that somehow teachers can wave a magic wand and that goes away. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that, that we have tried to do um, is to support teachers as much as we support students, because at the end of the day, um, the, the, most critical, uh, the, most, the most critical relationship in a school uh, district is that student-teacher relationship. And if my primary responsibility and the primary responsibility of all administrators is, is to support teachers so they can support students, I think that's where we need to go and that's where we need to spend uh, some of our resources and time. Uh, because right now, teachers are struggling and it is difficult and some folks are leaving the profession um, and they're, they're frustrated. Um, and we need to continue to support them. And, and the we in this case is all of us. It's the entire community. It's easy to say, well, you do it, or you do it, but it has to be everybody. So actually, Merle, going with that idea, like what can we do for teachers? Uh, first, we, we have to take a look at teachers' self-care. Uh, teachers are also traumatized, you know, um, through the pandemic and, and through all of the stuff that's being put on them, all these crazy, don't tell the truth about history bills and, and trying to force teachers to lie in the classroom. I mean, it, you know, when I'm there to, to be honest with my students, that's how you develop relationships through trust. If my students know I'm lying to them, they're not going to trust me. Um, and so self-care, I think, is the, is the first thing. Um, let me just quote uh, uh, Kurt Russell, who was the National Teacher of the Year for 2022. He just came and spoke to the State Board uh, just this past Monday. And he said something that brought tears to my eyes because it was so true. Uh-oh, I'm getting choked up here, sorry. <laughs> he said, uh, it's, it's, rude of a, it's rude of me to know that my students are not with it, maybe because of something they saw on the news and to go on teaching like nothing happened. That, And when his students come in the room, he says, how are we today? And they give him a thumbs up, a thumbs down, or a sideways thumb, um, uh, letting him know. When I was teaching, we did good, good thing, bad thing, funny thing. 
where the students were able to share something good or bad or funny that had happened. And through that exercise, I found out that one of my ninth graders, his little uh, uh, three-month-old um, uh, brother was having heart surgery. And you know, we had a community in our classroom. We knew that you could share things in here and it would not go outside the classroom. And a couple weeks later, he shared that his brother had died. And I was able to go to the funeral and meet his family because of that environment where the students were feeling safe. And, and so I think that's important for teachers to recognize how important it is. Let me just quote real quick um, Randy Weingarten, who is the president of the American Federation of Teachers. And she said something. She said, as teachers, we have to get up every single day and help our kids find hope and opportunity and solace and justice. That's our job. And, and that's our job, you know, that's what, and that's, that's what adds to the struggle and makes it so challenging because we're trying to take care of ourselves, but we're also have to take care of our students. Yeah, if I, if I may, I just want to say, I mean, the teachers and what they've been through over the last several years has just, it's, it's been heart-wrenching, but it's also been one of the most, I think, inspiring and heroic things that we've seen. And um, it's also, you know, really difficult to see them, you know, in a position where they're not being trusted or vilified by certain policymakers, you know, um, whether it be what they're teaching in the classroom or, or other things, yet we're trusting them, right, every single day with our children. And I mean, they've, they've earned that trust, they've earned that respect. And I just think about my children's own teachers, you know, as they were growing up. And, you know, I, I worry about them, I think about them, and I just hope that, you know, we keep the faith, you know, with our teachers and keep them in our classrooms. Tracy, stay there, yeah. stay there. So um, not everybody is comfortable with the whole child framework or how they're, you know, a characterization mm -hmm. of the right. whole child framework. Um, and there's definitely been controversy um, of late about any content in schools that is not strictly academic. Um, how do you make sense of that? What do you know about that? What do you say to that? You know, I'm so glad you're asking this because um, I've been trying to make sense of it myself, me and my colleagues, and especially, you know, me and my colleagues who are also parents because this just doesn't jive with what we know or what we know to be true in our community. So we had to test this. So, you know, I, my PhD, I love research. You know, I just can't go off opinion. I have to go off fact. I have to go off research. So um, we were very fortunate with the support of the Martha Holden Jennings Foundation earlier this year um, to engage in a research study with um, Baldwin Wallace Community Research Institute on knowledge and perception of parents, parents of school-aged children across the state of Ohio around the whole child framework, social-emotional learning, equity, school nutrition, trust in teachers. And guys, I have to tell you something. This is really, really critical. About 90% of parents overwhelmingly support these concepts. Okay, so when I say that, I mean, and we, we surveyed parents from across the political spectrum, religious, religious backgrounds, zip code, socioeconomic factors. I mean, it's, it, it was really overwhelming. In fact, we had more Republicans that responded on the survey than we did Democrats. So I, I think that the message that we get from this is that Bottom line, parents, no matter who you are, you love your children, you love your communities, you trust your teachers, and you trust them to do what's right by the children in your communities. And I think that's such a positive and optimistic message that we need to hold tight to. 
Um, I also think that it also tells us that a lot of the noise that we're hearing in terms of the controversy and the pushback on some of these things is truly from a small and marginalized group, but has an oversized voice, right, in many of these conversations, and a lot of money, yeah. So, um, but I, I hope that's a message of hope, and we're gonna be um, publishing um, the results of this in the next four weeks, but I just wanted to share that with you. And when you publish them, where can people find them? Well, Children's Defense Fund's website, cdfohio.org, um, and we're going to be co-publishing it with Baldwin-Wallace Community Research Institute. Wonderful. We'll, we'll share that out. Thank you for that work. Let me ask one last question, and Joe, why don't we come back this way, we'll start with you. Um, I'm thinking to Merle's opener about the arms around and the families and the communities and the schools, and also all that we need to be doing to support teachers. This feels like it comes down to partnerships and collaboration. Talk to us about the partnerships and collaboration that you feel are the most critical or you're watching do the most amazing work. What do you see? Sure, I'll, I'll be very specific and, that, and I'll tell you very briefly our story. Um, about a half a dozen years ago, uh, we took a look and, and we took a look it, again that we um, uh, were in the midst of a strategic planning process and we uh, held uh, roughly focus groups, including three or 400 people, and we asked them about what it is that they need the Wycliffe schools to do for them. Um, and what came back to us was we needed, again, we come back to what I said earlier, we needed to prepare our students to become, to become, to be, to become successful. So we built a plan, and we built a very specific plan. It begins with this idea of a student tenure plan, and for us, what that means is that when you're 14 years old, a school counselor sits down with you and says, what do you want to do when you're 24? And we have those meetings with individual students twice a year with the school counselors. Um, what grew out of the 10-year plan was this idea that we needed to get engaged the community. So all of our kids engage in site visits with the community every year, three or four times a year. All of our kids hear from professional speakers about the world outside of school, about employment opportunities, about careers, and, and so forth. All of our kids engage in internships and job shadowing experiences, and all of that requires the outer community, outside community saying, yes, we'll take your students. Yes, we'll engage with you. From there, what we learned is that our students desperately needed mental health and, and uh, uh, primary health care. So to that end, we designed and built what we call a family resource center. For that to come together, um, what we needed was help from the community. What did that look like? That looked like sitting down with 35 different local agencies and saying, if we build it, will you come? And we built it and they came. It, it came down to going to our, our primary health people, the people in our area and saying, can you provide nurse practitioners to us? And they did. Mental health counselors to us, and they did. Um, you know, I, I like to tell kind of a funny story ab about this. When we first introduced this concept to the community, they opposed it. Six years later, it's the best idea they've ever had. <laughs> um, we funded it through the support and help of the state government. Our state representatives got us some money uh, through the local innovation, the local government innovation fund. Our state senator got us capital money to actually build it out. We had a furniture company donate the furniture mm -hmm. to make the Family Resource Center a reality. So I can't tell you what partnerships, well, I can tell you what partnerships look like. 
What I do know for sure is every community has those people in their community who provide that kind of support and partnership. We couldn't do it without them. We can't do it without you. Tracy. I know. Um, I, I just have to say, I've, I've talked with um, Superintendent Specia and uh, many times, and it's just the work that they're doing in Wycliffe City Schools is amazing, and the care that they've, you know, wrapped around their students and their community is, you know, something I think that should be emulated in every school district in Ohio. Um, what, I, what I would say with partnerships is that, you know, it looks different depending on where you are, you know, depending on the needs of the local community. And that's why it's so important, you know, for local school districts and for parents and for businesses, you know, to come together, as they did in Wycliffe City Schools, to say, what is it that we'd like for our children? What is it that they need? What's missing from our community that we can build out? Um, and then, you know, figure out ways of doing it. Now, it would be great if there was, like, funding, you know, to do some of this, but um, a lot of school districts figure out how to do it, either through local foundations or businesses or, you know, companies that donate furniture because they feel so strongly about it. Um, but I, I will tell you what, partnership is the bedrock of every school community, and it has been. And it starts with the weekly, daily emails and texts that you receive from your, your child's teacher, which occurs in every district across the state, you know, to, um, you know, being a volunteer in your school or watching the school board meetings or donating your time and resources. Um, and it, it takes on a different, you know, a, a different hue depending on where you are and what's needed. But I'll tell you this, I have not gone to a community where people have not been willing to step up and do just that. So it's, I think that that's really positive for our communities and that's why I think it's um, really disheartening when I hear, you know, uh, you know, folks working with data-free opinions, <laughs> you know, <laughs> about, about trust and teachers, or <laughs> um, trust and teachers, or what's going on in schools and how it shouldn't be, how, anyway, that's, that's just my little editorial there. Merle, bring us on home. Okay, yeah. I'll bring you home. Um, the strategic plan, Each Child Our Future, that was developed that I mentioned earlier, we had three core principles, equity, partnerships, and quality schools. And, and it's not going to happen without that. And, and there's one group that doesn't get talked about, and that's our faith institutions. Mm. We have got to bring in our faith institutions. Um, you know, whether even if it's just celebrating success on Sundays when you're, when you're at church and you bring up young people who have been successful, or uh, if you're having tutoring, partnering with hospitals to train your tutors in trauma-informed strategies so that when they're working one-on-one -on -one or with small groups of students and the student seems to be having some problems and the tutor can know about breathing exercises and that kind of thing. And so there's, you know, partnerships are so valuable. That's the only way that we're really going to have the schools that our children and our educators deserve. I, I'm going to, I think, speak for the whole room when I say I have learned so much. I've actually felt moved, like quite powerfully, at several points. Me too. <laughs> and it's a huge honor to hear from you and the work you do and the depth of your thinking and the scale of your heart. So you can now ask them questions. Thank you guys so much.
We are about to begin the audience Q&A. I'm Cynthia Connolly, Director of Programming here at the City Club. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, and those joining via our live stream at cityclub.org. For our guests here in person, if you have a question, please first raise your hand. Our staff will acknowledge you, but remain seated until it's your turn to approach the microphone at either side of the auditorium. We ask that your questions are actually questions, short and to the point. And please no follow-up so our panelists can respond to as many questions as possible. Please return to your seat after you ask your question so we can keep the aisles clear and make space for the next audience member to approach the mic. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club. You can also text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And our staff will try to work it into the program. May we have the first question, please. Yes, thank you so much. Um, I was wondering if you could speak a bit to the, um, to the notion of uh, authentic partnership versus punishment or punitiveness in terms of policies, but maybe use the analogy of what punishment means for a child, what that does versus partnerships. It seems to me in our country and in our state, I haven't, as an educator myself, I haven't seen policies that have reflected true authentic partnership and a, a spirit of collaboration to create the best public schools in every community that we can. And instead, I've seen a lot of punitive policies. And as an educator myself, I know the way I need to view punishment, and I know the nature of the punishment has different you know, it has an impact on children and their well-being. So how does that reflect then on our schools and their well-being? Someone wants to kick off on this one? Lisa, I feel like you can answer that question best. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just staff here. I mean, I, I, I think what is so interesting, right, a disciplinary moment with a student is an incredible opportunity that shouldn't be squandered. But in terms of how that happens on the ground, what are some examples of how to take that in the direction it I, should go? I can, I can provide a terrific example, I think. So early this spring, we had a situation in which two, two girls were having a difficult time together. Um, and it escalated. And during the process, one of our staff members had to engage the, the girls. And, and one of the girls pushed the staff member. Um, that student ended up in my office for an expulsion hearing. Um, I heard, listened to the story. Um, and, and oftentimes people want a pound of flesh. And I went to the staff member, I said, so here's the situation, what do you think? And she said, send them to me. That staff member worked with that student. Um, there was no expulsion, okay? That staff member worked with that student, that student made great progress, and I believe um, that student um, and that, that, that staff member now have a, a remarkably good and strong relationship. Joe has a, a trauma-sensitive school district. <laughs> seriously, seriously. Because what he just explained was a restorative practice, uh, where it, it's no longer about punishment. Um, it, it's about healing. And, and that, to me, is, is what should be happening in, in, every, in every, every school. That is, is so important. I would agree. And you know, for restorative practices, you know, to be implemented within schools, there needs to be a commitment to that approach. 
um, to that approach of, you know, we're dealing with young people, we're dealing with children, you know, we're helping them grow into the people that we want and they want to become. And um, the restorative justice and the trauma-informed care approaches help you do just that. Because if you just expel a student, I mean, basically what you're doing is you're separating them from their learning opportunities. You're putting them on a different path, you know, where they can't realize those aspirations. And we have to do everything in our power not to allow that to happen. There's too many children that, you know, quite frankly, are pushed out of schools or given many, many reasons to leave school on their own. And we can't have that happen. Very quickly, Brian Stevenson, who wrote Just Mercy, said something very interesting. He said, imagine if you used uh, the number of suspensions and expulsions as a way to measure a school's success. I bet they would, cut, they would be decreasing in a second if that was used to measure how well a school was doing. Good afternoon. This uh, next question comes from Twitter. How can behavioral health organizations or agencies best partner with school districts beyond what has been typical? Joe, do you want to spin out a little bit more of some of what you've been up to? <laughs> Happy to, and, and I'll speak specific to our uh, Family Resource Center and, and give, again, a fairly specific example. So our Family Resource Center in the last 12 months has served 1,771 people. Um, 1,000 of which were students. Uh, we're, our, our resource center is open to the entire community, but um, our partners include behavioral health um, people. Signature Health is, is our primary behavioral and uh, primary care service, and we actually, oh, we contract with them. Um, they meet with and work with students and families during school, uh, before school, after school, and in the evenings. So that's the approach that we take. Um, and what we did in taking the Family Resource Center and putting it all in one place is we took all those goods and services to, to one location. So if you need behavioral health services, you can go there. Be primary care services, you can be there. Um, food, clothing, um, you can be there. It's all in one place, so it made it easier. And all of our, um, our partners agreed to this. We're throwing a party. You're all invited to the party, okay? And we engage everybody in that, in that environment, and we don't turn anybody away. Our rule in our Family Resource Center is you never, ever say no. You say yes. If you can't do it at the moment, you figure out how and we do it. So behavioral health, I, we're in a crisis point, especially when it comes to children, and we know this throughout the state of Ohio and actually across the country. Um, about half of youth across the U.S., about 52.2%, um, have major depression um, and do not receive any mental health treatment. So we know that there's a shortage of behavioral health services and providers. And you know, there are so many schools in Ohio that are experimenting, and also children's hospitals, that are experimenting with how do we extend those services you know, to those areas. I know that um, Nationwide Children's Hospital, you know, they've done a lot of work in Columbus and in southeastern Ohio, trying to use telehealth, um, you know, trying to use um, different models of how to meet the needs. But I think a key thing is that for a lot of families, it's not necessarily that, um, you know, it could be that there's a shortage of the services, but even when they get the services, there's also how do I get there? How do I take off work if I don't have leave? 
How do I, you know, all these different things, right? All these different barriers. So I think that schools play an integral role in that, you know, you kind of um, short circuit all those barriers. You know, if you can provide the services, whether it be in person or telehealth in the school where the child, while the child is there, you know, you can get services to that child. Um, so I, I think that there's a lot of great models. I, I think that we need a bigger workforce pipeline when it comes to behavioral health and figuring out how to, um, you know, open up more, more resource opportunities to fund those services as well. I read a statistic that said 75% uh, of suicide and or addiction issues occur under the age of 25 and 50% under the age of 14. So when you talk about behavioral health, we need a lot of help, a lot of help. And so I'm so glad this conversation is happening. Uh, so it, it's, it's urgent, it, it's a crisis, and we really do need to look into it more than we are. I will editorialize for a moment, um, just to build on what Tracy was saying about what, opening up the pipeline of um, caregivers in behavioral health. The other urgent, urgent need is actually increasing the pipeline of clinicians of color. Um, and, and that is just, you know, as we think about all of the ways that we need to intervene and act, that is a critical, critical yes. need. Very true, because there is a trust issue with yep. people of color and yep. clinicians. Yes, very good point. Um, I feel like this is a really <clears throat> warm room, and Lisa, I agree with you that, like, I, I'm leaving buoyed. And <laughs> when I watch the State Board of Education meeting, or I tune in to a legislative session at 11 at night and watch the amendments being added onto bills in Columbus, I feel like some of us need to grow our advocacy muscles in addition to our program muscles. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you could each offer one piece of very concrete advice that each of us who believe in this whole child framework, an action we can take that would allow us to ensure we are more active in protecting this in Ohio. Amen. Merle, you got one? Uh, you know, vote, vote for the people that care about kids. <laughs> That's my response. Um, I would echo that. Just, I would say vote, register, everyone you know to vote. Um, make sure they get to the polls. Um, also, if, if you're so inclined, you know, run for local office, run for your school board. You know, this is all our democracy, right? We have to be active participants in it. Um, my son, when he turned 18, he turned 18 the week after election day, and he was so upset about this. <laughs> so I was like, you know what? You want to do something about it? Why don't you volunteer at the polls? And that's what he did. Oh, that's so so he, he played yeah. his role in democracy. So I would challenge all of us to do the same. And if you have little kids, take them with you to vote. Show them what it's like. You know, we have to grow democracy here, right? I will agree with those two, and I'll add something that might be helpful as well. And, and, and again, it comes in the form of a story. In the district in which I live, not where I work, um, they have a, a group that is um, anti-everything, okay? Um, you know, they're, they're data-free in their decision-making, I think is what I learned earlier today. And they show up at every school board meeting, and they would lead you to believe that everybody else agrees with them. Um, 
go to a school board meeting, show up in mass, and tell the school board, no, we don't want that book banned. We want that book. All right. And we are the majority, not this other group. And let me just add, uh, register 18-year-olds, please. Anybody who's 18 by, I think, November 8th is the November election on or before, please register them to vote and register formerly incarcerated people. Uh, in Ohio, if you've been in prison, as long as you are not serving time, you have not been convicted, uh, you can vote. I registered to young people at the Calgary kind of uh, detention center um, two weeks ago. And um, they just get so excited when I walk in there. And, and I always, after we finish, I say, welcome to the world of voting. And, and we just have to, we can't forget that um, the young people in their detention centers also deserve uh, the opportunity to vote. So we just, let's make sure that we vote, that we register everybody who's eligible. Hi everyone. Thank you so very, very much for being here, first of all. Um, my name's Marina Palomino Bach. I am a very proud and relaxing right now, middle school educator. <laughs> the fact that I actually get to eat lunch, not just running from hallway to hallway, and I can go to the bathroom whenever I want, it's a big deal. Um, Meryl, especially, I wanna thank you really quickly. Um, I follow Honesty for Ohio Education, and I follow your district, and I'm one of the voters for you. Just thank you for all of your efforts. I appreciate it. Um, in addition to me being a middle school educator, I'm also the founder of the We Teach CLE Facebook network, as well as Brightside Educational Partners, which is a network for educators, a space for us to come together, whether you're homeschool, pod, private, Catholic, parochial, what have you. And um, I appreciate the focus on data because I want to throw educator efficacy up into the conversation for a moment. We know that it's education retention, educator retention is sort of a crisis right now. And since the pandemic, it has very much become a revolving door, um, which with educators being on our front line makes whole child education incredibly difficult. And in my work with Brightside Educational Partners, I've been very blessed to dive into the research of um, the Learning Policy Institute, as well as Dr. Linda Darling-Hammond, who just is suggesting the use of high quality, high quality educator preparation programs and residencies, as well as supporting the efficacy and retention of our educators. And I'm wondering, especially from Joe and Merrill, how have you seen this in Whitcliffe? What are you doing to keep our great teachers teaching longer? How can we keep our teachers in the classroom? How can we prepare them and support them and, and help them see themselves as professional and treat them professionally? So then that way these frameworks can be brought into the classroom. What are you seeing? And what can teachers and networks and the people with power do? Um, same answer, vote for people who care about kids. <laughs> you know, a lot of those decisions that disrespect our educators come from our legislators. And our legislators are running our teachers out of the, of the uh, classroom. Now, of course, the pandemic has been a big problem. Um, but, you know, when you, when you create bills that, like I said before, saying that you have to lie about history um, or, or you will lose your license, uh, your district will lose money, 
uh, uh, parents will be able to sue you if you are telling the truth about history. You know, when, when you have that coming at you and, and you're stressed out yourself and you're standing in front of students every day who are stressed out and you don't know what to do, um, some folks are really taking early retirement or they're, they're saying, you know what, I don't have to go through this. And it's really sad because um, teaching is, is the most important profession in the world as far as I'm concerned. And um, you really have to want to do it now. You know, we don't have people coming in uh, to teaching now because of the lack of, of uh, respect for our educators. So I think I, I'm really serious. You know, we have, to, we have to look at who we are putting in these positions that have a lot of power. You know, and then we have to follow groups like Honesty for, for Ohio Education who have an excellent website and they teach you how to advocate. They teach you how to fight back. And, and we have to step up and say, you know what, I'm not going to take this anymore. I'm going to do something about it. And um, so, so in the Wycliffe schools, we have the good fortune right now of going through a, a construction project in which we're rebuilding our entire campus. And as part of that process, we're also rebuilding our entire, entire educational program. We call it the reimagination of education. And part of that process is that, that Julie and I, and, and Julie is in the office, meet with every single small group of teachers, every single one, every month, they have been doing it for the past 18 or 24 months now. Um, we've had over 200 meetings with teachers and we asked them a real simple question. What do you want your, your life to look like as a professional? And as a result of that, we're gonna shape the educational environment of our school district that way. And to that end, we offered teachers over the last two years the opportunity to write a pilot project. Something you always wanted to do, never had an opportunity to do, and we're gonna try to make it happen. Um, in the last two years, we've had 35 such uh, projects that we have approved. And, and, and for the record, we're a small place, about 1,500 students, um, about 35 different projects. We have teachers who teach a theater class, they never come to school, they, they go out into the community to, uh, uh, you know, local theater uh, downtown here to, to the theater district, and they teach kids there. We have teachers that show up and teach classes at six o'clock in the morning. Uh, we have a, a teacher and, and uh, a partner, they created our equity class, and they teach kids um, you know, on their time. We also have the unique, and I think we're very grateful for um, our uh, relationship with our, our teachers union, because in our most recent negotiation, we wrote language that actually sets aside the rules if it's good for teachers and it's good for kids. Um, it's contract language that exists nowhere else I've ever seen. That's great. So wow. those are the things that we're trying to do. Um, and, it, and again, I always go back to it takes everybody. You know, initially here's the idea, but it took the union to say, yeah, we could do that. And it took teachers to say, because it was, it was a, it, frankly, it was a crapshoot. You know, um, how about a pilot project? What do you think? And we were so grateful for the, the response we received and we learned that teachers are true professionals in the work that they do. So you give them a chance and empower them and they do amazing things. Wow, that's great. This may be a softball question. <laughs> But I'm wondering what you can say about how the whole child framework can create safety in schools as opposed to arming teachers with guns. Wow. 
That's, that wasn't yeah. softball, but that was good. <laughs> Really, you got it? Uh, yeah, I, I just think the, the relationships, it's, it's relationships. That, that's the number one thing. Um, you know, in order for children, uh, students to feel safe, uh, they basically need three things. They need a, a trusting relationship with a caring adult. Um, they need structure and they need predictability. And, and if you have those three things in the classroom, um, y you know, you don't need to arm teachers. Uh, you know, things can happen from, you also need to change the gun laws so that, you know, you make sure that people who have mental uh, issues are not going buying guns. So, and you need to vote for the right people. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, all of that goes, goes in there, but the main thing is, is um, you know, caring, caring relationships and uh, structure and, and predictability. You know, um so I, I used to work for um, state government. I was in the Office of Budget Management, where I was the Section Chief for Education, Budget, and Policy. And you know, one of the things that I learned is that you put your money where your priorities are, right? So we need to put more money into those things that create flourishing communities for children, not fearful fortresses you know, that are armed. Um, and I see a lot of money going into Let's arm teachers. Let's you know build fortified you know school buildings. Let's put police officers in schools, and I just keep thinking, wow, it, what a different world this would be if we thought about, you know, let's let's invest more in maybe enrichment activities after school, or in free lunches. You know, all these other things, behavioral health services or social emotional learning. Let's do these things that are more life giving. Right, and, and also I'll just say this about House Bill 99. I know it was signed into law. This is the legislation that would basically allow teachers to be armed in schools with school board approval with only 24 hours worth of training rather than 720, which was in law previously. There was 150 people that testified against this legislation. Two people testified for it and they both stand to profit from it. And it still passed. Parents, everyone overwhelmingly said they did not want this. I think it was nine out of 10 teachers were against it. Eight out of 10 parents were against it. Eight out of um, 10 students were against it. Yet here we are. So I will just echo what Merrill Johnson said, vote for people who support children. <laughs> I, I will simply add, I'm, I'm gonna take a, a, a page out of Tracy's book. The data doesn't support our main teachers. It's really that simple. The data doesn't support it. What supports um, uh, you know, good, good teaching and, and learning and safety is our relationships. The data supports that. The data doesn't support arming teachers. Can we talk about safety? Children will not feel safe with more, more guns in the school. That's not logical. It's not common sense. I'm gonna wrap us up. There's so many high points, but here's three. What's good for teachers is good for kids. You've given us the greatest euphemism of the year with the data-free opinions. <laughs> and, we're, and we're gonna steer clear of those. Vote. All right. Thank you all so much. Thank you so much, Merle, Tracy, Joe, and Lisa for joining us here today at the City Club. 
Today's forum is part of our Education Innovation Series in partnership, partnership with uh, Nordson. A special thank you is also in order for the members of the City Club Education Committee, whose time and input helped bring, bring this topic to the stage. Our membership committees consist of people just like you, experts, advocates, and community members who have brilliant ideas on programming and wish to contribute to the City Club mission of promoting free speech and democracy. If you're interested in joining a City Club member committee, please reach out to me at any time. We would also like to welcome guests at the tables hosted by the Cleveland Foundation, Intergenerational Schools, Honesty for Ohio Education, the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland, Nordson, and the Northeastern Ohio Education Association. Thank you all for being with us today. Tomorrow, July 15th, we will actually sort of continue this conversation. We'll kick off our behavioral health series with IdeaStream's Marlene Harris-Taylor and local behavioral health experts. They will examine the pipeline of behavioral health care here in Northeast Ohio. And don't miss our final Public Square Forum of the summer next Tuesday. IdeaStream's Rick Jackson will be joined by Lila Mills and Jim Crutchfield to talk about Cleveland's new nonprofit journalism initiatives. And then on Friday, July 22nd, we are back at the City Club to hear from Bashara Addison, Jill Rizika, and Renee Timberlake about what it will take for workers to thrive in the workforce. Telian J. Thomas with Jumpstart Inc. will be moderating that conversation. You can learn more about these and other forums at cityclub.org. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you once again to our panelists, and thank you members and friends of the City Club. Our forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.